uh, the birthday of Martin Luther King Jr. And it reminded me of a, of a paragraph that I read from one of his letters a number of years ago in a book entitled Letter from uh, Birmingham Jail. He wrote this, a little lengthy, but I think it's worth the read. He said, I must confess that over the past few years I've been gravely disappointed with a white moderate. I've almost reached the re regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizens council or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate. He's more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice. Shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection, he said. We would be uh, hard-pressed this morning, I think, to come up with anything equivalent to the blight on American, uh, the American church's witness as our response to racism. In some cases, the church has actively perpetrated racism. Last December, in an act of public repentance, a Southern Seminary in Louisville published a 70-page report chronicling, uh, chronicling the seminary's ties to slavery and claims of white superiority, including details down to how many slaves that its founders owned and quotes from their leaders' past regarding their theological defenses of inequality. It's not, though, just one Baptist seminary that's been guilty of perpetrating racism. Methodist churches, Baptist churches, Presbyterians, non-denominational churches like ours, Episcopalians, Catholic churches, and more. All have denied at one time or another the dignity and the humanity of minority cultures. But even if the American church weren't guilty of actively perpetrating racism, We've been all too unconcerned with the plight of our brothers and sisters in Christ who have been victims of racism. Archbishop, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, who led uh, South Africa's Truth and Reconciliation Committee following years of apartheid in South Africa, once put it this way, in a way that only he could. He says, if you're neutral in situations of injustice, you have chosen the side of the oppressor. If an elephant has its foot on the tail of a mouse and you say that you are neutral, the mouse will not appreciate your neutrality. I want to take you this morning to the account of the first blatant act of racism by a leader in the church in history. I think you'll be surprised by who the leader was, and I think you'll be very surprised by how it was handled. If you have a Bible with you, turn with me in it to Galatians chapter 2 this morning. We are in a series of sermons uh, from the letter to the Galatians. If you have a Bible, turn to Galatians chapter 2 and verse 10. If you have a digital copy of the Bible, find Galatians chapter 2 verse 10, however you find it. It's fine. If you don't have a Bible, there's one in the pew racks in front of you that you can borrow. While you're turning there, just, just a quick review of where we've been so far. The Apostle Paul wrote this letter to a group of predominantly Gentile churches that he had planted. And he wrote it as a defense against his gospel and as a retort to his accusers. Paul said in his gospel, the way for anyone in the world to be accepted by God is to place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as opposed to placing your faith in any external traits or performance or obedience. His accusers said, sure, by all means, place your faith in Jesus, but if you're a Gentile, you must also become a Jew 
in order to be accepted by God. And in order to gain a foothold for their teaching, they had maligned Paul's authority to preach his gospel, said that the real apostles in Jerusalem didn't agree with Paul. And so we saw in last week's passage that Paul uh, describes a trip that he took to Jerusalem to see the, the other apostles, and he made it clear that not only did they agree with his gospel, but they also agreed that requiring Gentiles to become Jews was in direct opposition to the gospel of Jesus Christ because it violated the whole purpose of God in human history, which was, namely, to bring together in the church every ethnicity on earth under the kingship of Jesus Christ. That was the whole purpose of God in human history. Now I want to jump uh, into the passage at verse 10 now of Galatians chapter 2. Verse 10, Galatians chapter 2. Paul says that all they asked, that this was the apostles, the other apostles, all they asked of him was that we should continue to remember the poor, the very thing I had been eager to do all along. Now, you have to understand uh, the cultural context to get the significance of this. Jewish people in Jerusalem who had come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ were being persecuted by both other Jewish people as well as the Gentile Roman government for their faith in Christ. And so these believers were losing jobs, they were having their property confiscated, they were unable to buy food because of their faith in Christ. Uh, these were the poor that the apostles asked Paul to remember. They were saying, think about the significance of this, they were saying, Paul, please tell the Gentile converts to Christianity who formerly hated the Jews and who the Jews formerly hated, tell those Gentile converts to Christianity to please take up offerings to give to their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. It's remarkable. There's an old saying that the last thing that gets converted when a person believes in the Lord Jesus Christ is their wallet. Well, the ultimate demonstration of the radical transforming power of the gospel would be for Gentiles who have converted to Christianity to give money out of their concern for their struggling Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. But all of this new unity in the midst of diversity may have sounded great on paper, but look, here's the reality. It still has to be worked out in the hearts of people. In verse 11, Paul writes, when Peter, Peter, you remember Peter, one of the disciples of Jesus, when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Now right away, you can see that, that if Paul is a lesser apostle, if he's subordinate to the, uh, to the other apostles, he's not confronting Peter. He's not doing that. So Paul again swats away the accusation of his accusers that he's a lesser apostle. But why? Why does he confront Peter? Watch, watch verse 12. Before certain men came from James, he used to, Peter, used to eat with the Gentiles. Now, Peter had been in Jerusalem in the previous verses when Paul brought his gospel uh, to the apostles, Peter being one of those, and said to them, look, salvation is by faith in Christ alone. Gentiles don't need to become Jews to be accepted by God. Peter was there. Peter had affirmed it. He was on board 100%. Now, in addition to that, there's this very interesting little account in the book of Acts. It's kind of odd, but it's really fascinating. And in this account, God revealed to Peter that all of the kosher food laws that Peter had followed all of his life, that he'd grown up with, 
revealed to Paul, uh, excuse me, to Peter, that those were no longer necessary because all of those laws had been fulfilled in Christ. So, so Peter travels to Antioch. Why Antioch? Probably, probably because he wanted to show unity with the Gentiles. It's a great thing. Antioch was loaded with Gentiles. The church there, of course, was loaded with Gentile Christians. And so when Peter gets there, he does the previously unthinkable thing. He sits down to eat with the Gentile Christians at the church potluck. Now, I don't mean to be, I don't mean to be flippant about what I'm going to say here. The only thing that I can think to compare it to in order for you to understand how shocked the Gentile people would have been to have Peter eat with them would be to compare it to a white restaurant owner in the South in the 1950s allowing a black man or a woman to sit down and, and eat at the counter with white people. It's that kind of thing. It's, it's that shocking. Peter is eating with people that he's ever, never eaten with before. And he's eating food that he's never eaten before. You can imagine, he goes through the potluck line and he piles his plate with, with Gentile food. He scoops up some scalloped potatoes and stabs a few Swedish meatballs, a couple of pork chops maybe, scoops up some three-bean salad, which he'll regret when he gets back to his table and tastes it. <laughs> but it's okay because he's got some banana pudding for dessert that will make it all better. And all of his taste buds are probably throwing a party. Where's this been all of our life? But even more important than the food itself is the sight of Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians sitting down at a table and eating a meal together. That's the explosive power of the gospel to bring these two ethnicities who formerly hated each other together. That's the power. But then, one day, uh-oh, the Jewish mafia shows up at the church. These dudes are angry, they're grim, they're racists, they despise Gentiles. Paul refers to them here as certain men from James, and it's a little unclear, but it appears that Paul has air quotes around this. These guys were from the same group of people who had infiltrated Paul's churches in Galatia. They claimed to come with the authority of the Apostle James, but they didn't have his authority at all. They were self-appointed Mosaic law enforcers. Make sure the Gentile converts were becoming Jews, getting circumcised, obeying the dietary laws, you know, all of the external markers of Judaism. And make sure that the Jews aren't hanging around Gentiles. That was their purpose. And as soon as they walk in the room, all of the newfound joy and reverie and laughter that these Jewish and Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ are experiencing around the table, all of it comes to a screeching halt. You can hear a pin drop. And all eyes turn toward Peter. Why Peter? He's the apostle from Jerusalem. He's got the Jews. He's the authority. Everyone wants to know what Peter is going to do. And before we read, or before we, before we say anything more here, I just want to remind you of something. Anyone remember the name of the disciple who swore that he would back Jesus up no matter what? But then on the night Jesus was arrested, ran in fear because a girl recognized him as one of Jesus' disciples. Do you remember who it was? Yeah, it, it was Peter. 
And so as much as we want Peter to walk right up to these legalists and look them straight in the eyes and take a great big bite of a pork chop, well, Peter can't bring himself to do that. Last part of verse 12. When they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. This was the Jewish mafia. And there it is, in all of its hideous ugliness, the first act of racism by a church leader in church history. Now look, you need to know that I've, in retelling the story here, I've kind of I've made this all a little more dramatic than the verb tenses here in verse 12 suggest. Peter's drawing back and separating himself. The verb tenses suggest that it was much more gradual, less sudden, less dramatic than I've made it out to be. Maybe he went from eating two meals a day with the Gentiles to eating one meal a day and then to none. But I mentioned that gradualness of Peter's drawing away to point something out that I think is very, very critical for us to see this morning. You know, Peter didn't stand up and start shouting racial epithets at the Gentiles. You filthy Gentile swine. No, he didn't do that. He wasn't overtly racist. No, the problem is Peter's passivity. Instead of confronting the Jewish mafia and their racism and declaring his unity with the Gentiles and continuing to sit among them, Peter quietly draws back and just lets the established ways of thinking among his people continue. I mean, look at how, look at how Peter's passivity affected the rest of the group. Verse 13. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy. In other words, the other Jewish Christians that were there joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. Even Barnabas, you remember Barnabas, right, from last week's sermon? Two Jews and a Gentile walked into Jerusalem. Yeah, that Barnabas, that Barnabas. Even he is led astray. And yet in spite of the fact that his actions weren't overtly racist, Paul's response to Peter tells us what we need to know. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. Here's the point. Here's the point. Passive racism. Passive racism is a sin. Passive racism is what Martin Luther King Jr. was getting at when he said in the quote that I read to you earlier that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's council or the Ku Klux Klaner, but the white moderate who's more devoted to order than to justice, who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is a presence of justice. It's passive racism. You know, had, I, had you or I been there and could have asked Peter in that moment that this happened, if he was a racist, he would have said no. He would have said, I used to be, but when I met Christ, all of that changed. I know that being Jewish doesn't make a person more acceptable to God than being a Gentile. He might have even pointed around the room and said, look, some of my best friends are Gentiles. It's not that Peter didn't believe the gospel. 
We'll see in the next few verses that he very much did. It's just that instead of letting the gospel drive him forward in a positive way, he let his fear paralyze him into backing away. You know, if, if City Church is going to do what we say that we want to do on the wall here in our vision statement, we're going to have to be people who let the gospel move us to do something positive about both racial injustice in our city as well as some of the economic inequities driven by systemic racism which exist in our city. And I'm going to just be, I'm just going to be perfectly honest with you. I don't have a great plan for how to address that. I wish I did. I don't have a great plan for how to address it. But I do have a couple of small, very small steps in the right direction. On February uh, 23rd, we're going to take a couple of vans full of city church people who want to and who, who can go. And we're going to take them and we're going to acquaint ourselves with some of the areas in our city in desperate need of revitalization due in part to economic inequities caused by active or passive racism in our city. An organization that we've worked with uh, since we launched as a church, Community One. Community One works to do right, revitalization in, in, in these neighborhoods. They're going to lead these tours. And look, I know, look, listen, not everyone can go, in part because we're limited to the number of people that we can take. You know, we can only take 20 people on these tours at most. And we're limited in part because you know, some of you can't go for other reasons. Just because you go, don't go doesn't mean you don't care. I'm not trying to set up some false way of measuring your concern about racism. That's not what I'm trying to do. But if you would like to go and can go, you can go out to citychurchevv.com backslash sign up to sign up. Or you could go out at the end of the service to the Welcome Center after the service and let people there know your interest. But Spots are limited to 20 people, so if you're going to sign up, you better sign up quickly. That's one thing we're going to do. Second thing, after that, after we do that, the same organization, Community One, needs some storage barns built to help them do revitalization. This is what, the, this is what those storage barns uh, look like. We're going to purchase uh, the kits to build three of these, and we're going to build them out here in our parking lot, and then once we've built them, we're going to deliver them uh, to where Community One uh, needs them. And we're going to be asking for your help on those in the weeks ahead if you're, if you're good at, at building stuff like that. Now, I'm almost embarrassed to say that these are the things that we're doing because I'm going to tell you that neither of those are going to solve racism or the e economic inequities due to systemic racism in our city. But they are steps, which might lead to other steps some of which you will take individually, perhaps some that we will take corporately as a church. We just have to start somewhere and do something. And that's where we're going to start. Because the gospel requires, it, it moves us to do positive things. It doesn't, it doesn't leave us paralyzed in our fear. That's what passive racism is. And before we close, there's, there's one other thing that I think is very critical for you to see this morning. And I'm going to put it this way. That the only power in the world that can defeat racism is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I want you to notice something uh, very interesting in this passage. I want you to watch 
how Paul confronts Peter. And he tells us exactly how he does it. He tells us exactly uh, what he said. Verse 14. He says, When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? He says, we who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law because by observing the law, no one will be justified. Now, that's a lot of words. It's a lot of words. Why didn't Paul just say, Peter, you're practicing racism. You're breaking the rules of Christianity. Stop it. Why didn't he just do that? Well, stick with me here for, for just a moment. Because I want to just develop this thought briefly. It, it's very possible that if you or, or I were there watching this, this whole event transpire, we might be tempted to say that what is driving Peter's behavior is his religious beliefs. Paul says, no, 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 no. Uh, that's not what it is. It's fear masquerading as religion. Remember he said in verse 12 that it was out of fear of the Jewish mafia that made Peter begin to with, withdraw. So what is it that Peter's so afraid of? Well, on the surface you might say, well, he's afraid of rejection by the Jewish mafia. Sure, that's the, that's the proximate cause, but it's not the ultimate cause. Think about it like this. What difference did it make if the Jewish mafia rejected and condemned Peter? Like, what difference did it make? If you were able to jump into some kind of magical little capsule that would take you to the center of Peter's soul, you would find lurking there, at the center of his soul, a monstrous fear of being unworthy. You'd find the same fear at the center of your soul, too, at the center of mine as well. Deep down, we all know instinctively, regardless of what we may say to ourselves, regardless of what we may project to others, we know that there's something very, very wrong with us. After Adam and Eve sin in the Garden of Eden, God goes looking for them and he calls out for them. Here's Adam's answer. He says, I heard you in the garden and I was, I was afraid because I was naked. And so I hid fear. Why? Because he was naked. And by the way, not just physically. He was psychologically naked as well. He was exposed before God. Before the perfect God, Adam was exposed. And so what was his solution to hide? We, we, we know it instinctively. Something is very, very wrong with us. And so we have to find a way to manufacture self-esteem by finding something or someone or some group of someone that we can attach ourselves to that will hide our unworthiness and make us superior to other people. This, by the way, is what makes legalism so natural to human beings. Here's a definition of legalism. You can keep this. We'll refer to it later. But it's, it's, it's this. Looking to anything besides or in addition to Jesus Christ to be acceptable before God. Now, that, that, that legalism can take all sorts of forms, and we'll talk about those more in the weeks to come. But for Peter, that legalism took the form of his Jewishness. He had been taught all of his life that his Jewishness is what made him worthy. It's what made him superior to others, and specifically his obedience to the Jewish law. His racial pride is driven by fear, you see. And so understand this. If Paul just tells Peter to stop being a racist, 
he's only focusing on the external behavior of racism and not dealing with the root of Peter's racism, that monstrous fear of unworthiness lurking at the center of his soul that has driven so much of Peter's cowardice throughout his life. And not only that, if Paul just tells Peter to stop being a racist because he's violating the rules of Christianity, if you think about it, he's just using guilt and shame to motivate Peter. And when you use guilt and shame to motivate another person, you put yourself in the exalted position of the judge and the other person in the uh, inferior position of the judge. And if you think about it, that's the same dynamic racism operates on, doesn't it? Isn't that how racism operates? Better than you? If you think about it, this is how secular culture addresses racism. Secular culture tries to guilt and shame people out of racism, which only shifts the problem from one kind of superiority to another. And it never deals with the fear at the heart of the human soul that creates the need for it in the first place. Paul does something very different. Rather than using guilt and shame to motivate Peter, Paul grounds his, con- his, his confrontation in the very thing Peter and all of the people who are in earshot needed to drive out their fear of unworthiness, which causes racism to begin with. And that was the grace of God. That's, that's what all of those verses I read are really about. They're, I'm going to tell you, those verses are really very complicated, and I'm not trying to skirt that. I'm just afraid that if I get bogged down in trying to explain those verses to you, you'll miss the bigger point that Paul repeats over and over in these verses, that no man is justified. You know what justified means? Uh, It means to be forgiven, but it also means, means to be made acceptable, to be made worthy. He says, no man is justified by anything external, by your performance, by your race, nothing. No man is justified by that. In other words, he's saying, he's saying the only way that a person can be made worthy is through faith in Christ. And he's saying, he's saying to Peter, Peter, you don't need approval from these men. They can't make you worthy. You already have Christ's approval, and that has made you acceptable, worthy in the sight of the creator of the universe. These guys can't add anything to it, and they can't take anything away from it. He knows, and he knows Peter believes that. He knows Peter understands that. It's just that he isn't living it out, and so he appeals to Peter on the basis of the grace that he, Peter, himself had received. Peter, if you received the love of God freely, if you received the acceptance of God freely through grace in Christ, why put the Gentiles under a burden of obeying the Mosaic law and becoming Jews? Why put them under that burden if God didn't put you under that burden? See, Paul doesn't try to to guilt or shame Peter. He reminds him of the gospel. Only the gospel can drive out the fear that prompts racism to begin with. You will never drive racism out if you don't deal with the hard issues that cause it. The fear of unworthiness that demands that I be superior to someone else. You'll never drive out racism without addressing that fear. And the only thing that can address that fear is the free love of God, the free acceptance of God through faith in Christ Jesus, not through any external performance, not through any external behavior, not by becoming a certain race. Nothing. 
only thing in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the only thing that can drive out racism. Now, one last thing I just, I just want to say. How is it that you deal with the stuff in your life that you find that isn't in line with the gospel? Do you guilt and shame yourself? Or do you preach the gospel to yourself? Do you remind yourself of the acceptance that you have before God through faith in Christ Jesus and not because of anything that you do or don't do. Not be, no failure that you, no failure that you have can, can steal God's love from you or acceptance of you. And no success that you have can make him love you or accept you more. Do you preach that to yourself? That it's only Jesus Christ can make you acceptable before God. Only your faith in Christ. You preach that to yourself. Not only is it the only way that you drive out racism, it's the only way that you drive out any sin in your life. By preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ over and over to yourself. That's it. Would you bow your heads with me? confess our pride to you, Lord Jesus Christ, a pride that is born out of monstrous fear that lurks at the center of our souls, that demands that, that we have to overcome through attaching ourselves to something, to someone, to some group of someone. We confess, too, that we often use guilt and shame to try to motivate others ourselves out of racism. It doesn't work. Lord Jesus Christ, would you today in this room, if there are people here that have never come to understand that acceptance before God comes only through belief in you, would you drive that truth home to them this morning? That if they place acceptance before you in anything other than faith, then they end up feeling superior to someone else. We thank you that the purpose of God in human history is to bring every ethnicity under the sun into one place, under the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray that as a church we would manifest that. That we would not be passively racist or actively racist. Instead, we would allow the gospel to move us forward, to care deeply about the plight of our brothers and sisters in Christ who experience either active racism or passive racism in the form of systemic inequality. Would you do that, Lord Jesus? Take these small little steps that we want to take as a church. And would you do something more than we could ever, ever imagine? Or, you know, a few fish and a few pieces of bread, would you feed the thousands with that? pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, who we worship and in, who, and in whom we find acceptance before God. Thank you. Amen.